Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm not a doctor. <laughs> This Ben Jarofsky Show, Benny J Bonus Interview is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, it's Friday, July 24, 2020. Lord knows when you're listening to this is a podcast. As I always do, I read what's in the news. So that maybe say five years from now, you go, oh my God, that's what was going on. So I have my Chicago Tribune. It's appropriate that I'm using the Tribune. Uh, home delivered. You're welcome, Tribune staffers. I support you with my subscription. And the headline is Fed's investigation into Madigan widens AT&T subpoenaed about use of consultants with ties to House Speaker. We talked about this story a couple days ago. Uh, shout out to Jason Meisner, Hal Dardick. God, they had like four guys working on this thing. Uh, Jamie Monks and Ray Long. Good job. Uh, we talked about it earlier. Oh, Michael Joseph Madigan, my beloved Democratic Party. Let's not get into that one. But what are you guys up to? Anyway. As I always do with a bonus interview in the Ben Jurassic Show, I ask my distinguished guest to introduce him or herself. So distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Uh, hello, Ben Jurassic listeners. This is Charlie Johnson. Um, I'm a homepage editor at the Tribune. Okay, that was a very brief in, uh, introduction. He could do a little better than that. The reason Charlie Johnson is here, yes, very it's true. In newspaper journalism, Ben. Yes, he's... Not only uh, an editor at the Chicago Tribune, but I've been all day long as I've been promoting this interview, I've been calling him the union shop steward at the Tribune. I don't know if he literally is, but that's like baby boober talk for being a union leader with uh, the union. And uh, for full disclosure, Charlie and I are in the same union. All right. So we we each pay dues to the same union. That's correct. Uh, everybody knows who listens to the Ben Jarofsky show. I'm a big supporter of unions and I'm supported by unions. So uh, this is my current crusade, Charlie, to try to save newspapers through unions. Wish me luck with that. Before we get started, I just want to say that anything Charlie Johnson says is Charlie Johnson's opinions and worldview. They do not reflect the Chicago Tribune. Is that correct, Charlie? That is accurate. And so leave them alone. Okay, bosses, we have freedom of speech in this country. If Donald Trump can say stuff and not get help be held accountable for it, so can Charlie Johnson. So leave him alone. He has free uh, First Amendment protected freedoms of speech. All right, Charlie, um, you were on the show. Uh, forget how many months ago with Mary Wisniewski talking about uh, union organizing at the Tribune, uh, the, the challenges that the Tribune was facing because of new ownership. Uh, I'd like to know. It was snowing, I remember it was snowing really bad and there was a Pete Buttigieg sign in a window across the street. So it was at least that long ago. Wow. 
Damn, that was a long time ago. Uh, so what has changed? Let's get an update on the status of employees uh, at the Chicago Tribune. Yeah, so uh, what has changed is quite a bit and yet very little at the same time. So for people who aren't really aware um, or have heard this once and kind of went in one ear and then out the other, uh, the Tribune, um, the company that owns it is being acquired by a hedge fund named Alden Global Capital, which has sort of become the prime villain uh, in the journalism world. Um, and essentially their playbook just really in short is they snap up newspapers, uh, which they can get at prices that are pretty low. They kind of view them as distressed assets, the way you might view like a factory in a hard luck Rust Belt city as a distressed asset. And they kind of strip them for parts. They slash staff, they slash days in which the paper prints. Um, oftentimes they might raise prices knowing that there's a certain clientele, often an older clientele that's going to get the paper every day until they uh, depart this mortal coil just out of pure habit. Mm-hmm. And they pull a lot of profit out of these papers um, in the short term while hedging themselves against any of the losses. And then what you get you know, when they're done with it is a paper that isn't really worth very much anymore. It doesn't have any kind of new, young, vibrant subscriber base. Um, it doesn't have a good reader experience online. It's not well positioned for the next five, 10, 20 years. And uh, the, the sort of inner industry term is ghost, ghost newspaper. Um, and they don't serve their communities well and uh, they're not vibrant um, and they're, they miss a lot of stuff. And our concern is that that's what's gonna happen here at the Tribune. Um, when last we talked, um, Alden had purchased uh, quite a bit. They were the largest shareholder, not the majority shareholder in the company. And uh, a agreement that prevented them from grabbing more of the company shares lapsed and what was sort of banged out in the boardroom, of course, without any employee input, was uh, a deal that would allow uh, the board to expand and put another member uh, from Alden on the board. So now they control three of seven board seats. So not quite a majority, but something like 40%. And they can't acquire any more shares until the next board meeting, which I think has to be held no later than summer of next year. So it's sort of a short-term stall, I guess. Um, But their, their plan to acquire the paper and presumably make serious cuts um, is still on the table, still very much a threat. Um, we still feel like we're very much in jeopardy and we can talk more about that, um, but that's the lay of the land where we are now. We're still negotiating our first contract. Um, we feel as if we're negotiating with Alden, the way the company is uh, treating us at the table, both in terms of the formal demands they're making and the, the tone and timbre that's coming across. Um, and uh, you're actually, I have to correct you, Ben. Uh, I'm not actually a dues payer yet because you don't pay dues in uh, until you have your first contract. Um, yep. So, right. uh, I have full union protection at the moment and have for a while now, and uh, I have not crossed uh, one red cent into the pocket. Um, All right. No, I've crossed uh, countless hundreds of man hours in, I suppose. All right. Uh, I, I said corrected. You're absolutely correct. I remember it took a long time at the reader uh, when we signed our cards, uh, had an election, and then uh, the uh, it was unanimous to uh, join the union to uh, organize. Uh, and then it took forever. 
Uh, it, can for, long, uh, it can be a long yeah. process. It can be a short process. It can be a long process. It depends on a number of factors, uh, how favorable the board is, how many, um, you know, sort of uh, tweeners you have, you know, people who the union would posit are in the union and people that management would say, no, they're management, they're out. Um, and then the, you know, the position of the company too, you know, some companies want to get a deal done for a variety of reasons. Others want to be obstinate. So well, let, me, let, me, let me talk about that. Cause that's actually a very good point. Uh, and I'll share with you, which I probably have done already, but I'll share it again. What happened at the reader. And then you uh, tell me what's going on at the tribute sure with the reader. When we first, uh, organized when we first voted uh, to organize we were owned by an old consortium of investors that previously owned the chicago sun times uh and it was very clear to us they were antagonistic to put it mildly uh to uh the reader collectively bargaining yes they were and so it was like they would disagree on absolutely everything we would yeah we would say the sky is blue and they'd go no it's not it's red and then we would be arguing over that for an hour and it dragged on and dragged on and then a new consortium of owners ironically including many labor unions took control of the Sun-Times slash reader. I want to give a shout out to Edwin Eisendrath. People don't forget that he was part of that. And overnight, Charlie, the attitude changed. The attitude, the, it was the same negotiators, but literally they changed their tune. They were just following the tune. They have of, voices like everybody else. Yes. And uh, we cut a deal. And we signed a contract and, and life went on. Mm -hmm. Has there been a shift in the attitude of the negotiators at the table uh, with you and the union since Alden uh, took 30% of the Tribune? Um, it was never great, but it's gotten, if anything, it's become more terse, I would say. I don't think it's been a dramatic, like, night and day kind of shift the way you're describing it. But I think when you consider that you know, their negotiators ultimately report to the CEO and the board. He reports to the board. And now the board is, you know, full of people who are not in the news business. These aren't people who want to make a great, hard-hitting, prestigious, world-beating news product and make money doing it. And, you know, of course, have to make some difficult decisions along the way in terms of what they're going to invest in and when they might cut staff or cut resources. These are people who are in the money business, they're interested in the maximal return on investment, period, full stop, no other considerations. And that includes the civic health of a city like Chicago, where they don't live. They live in New York City. Um, when you consider that, he, that per, this person that the negotiator reports to is now functionally auditioning for his job uh, mm. to the board, which is now full of a bunch of new people, it's really not surprising that they're taking this extraordinarily hard line. Um, you know, he understands that they're after profit, not prestige, not journalism, not Pulitzers. Profit, not Pulitzers. That's a, that's a good, I should give that on a t-shirt. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think it's surprising to see that, you know, dribble down to the negotiating table. Where we're talking well, that, about we're talking about pay scale, we're talking about benefits, we're talking about severance, we're talking about family leave, you know, we're, we're talking about costs. 
Right. Uh, and uh, so if ultimately you want to prove to your boss how tough you are, uh, you'll kick Charlie. It's like, like I can't kick the boss. I'll kick Charlie. Yeah. All right, I want you to take a moment before we talk about the changes uh, at the Tribune uh, mm -hmm. since Alden took over the people who've left the Tribune. I want you to make the case uh, as to why it's so important. I can make the case for you, but I want to hear you make the case. Why it's so important for Chicago to maintain two newspapers. We got the Sun-Times, we got the Tribune. Uh, why is it so important for the city of Chicago that the Chicago Tribune exists? Uh, such, a, such a large question. I mean, in the first place, uh, th this is a damn big city. Um, it's very large. It's the third largest city in the country. And, you know, to think that it only has two newspapers, that would have been you know, really quite unthinkable, um, you know, a few decades ago. I mean, I think the answer is like, in some ways, very simple. It's, you know, would, would you say that there's a significant amount of, you know, corruption in this town? I think almost everybody in Chicago would say, yeah. Um, don't you want as many people as possible investigating that corruption and holding public officials accountable? Um, you know, would you say that there it's, you know, uh, a sports town that has an enormous amount of news that come out of uh, locker rooms every day? You know, yeah. Don't you want as many people as possible turning over rocks to figure out what's going to happen next for the sports team you love? Um, I think there's an obvious difference ideologically in the editorial boards and the opinion positions of the two papers. Um, you might not credit one side as much as the other. I know I certainly don't, but I think it's important that you have people who are attacking issues of the day from a lot of different angles um, and sort of making sure to be incisive and take an angle of attack on public officials and political parties that maybe the other one isn't so inclined to do. Um, Really, it's interesting insofar as, and I think you can probably attest to this, is, you know, the Sun-Times and the Tribune um, both have unionized staffs, for one. Um, but, you know, they're blood rivals, right? I mean, back in the day, uh, someone would have pushed their mother down the stairs, you know, to get a scoop that uh, the Sun-Times didn't have or the, the Tribune didn't have. And more and more, I think we see each other as certainly competitors, no doubt, but as... Uh, Frenemies, maybe, is a word to describe it. Uh, people who are ultimately have the same goal, even if we're competing for clicks and eyeballs and subscription dollars. And uh, I think that's really true of journalism in a lot of big cities now. Um, there's much less of a sort of bloodthirsty competition and more a sense that um, journalism is in a really precarious place and we need as much of it as possible. We've already lost so much of it, especially, especially at the local level. Um, and I know that um, when the Sun Times looked like it might be acquired by Tribune Publishing or then Tronk and Michael Farrow, that was like a, you know, people in the newsroom were unhappy about that. They wanted the Sun Times out there pounding the pavement and making us do good work and, and forcing us to be better through competition. Um, and, it just seems obvious to me that more journalism, more accountability for the taxpayer, more corruption bird dogging, more stories from people who might be the victims of abuse either by the government or an employer um, or uh, a law that should be written is just, I mean, it's just obvious. It's in, it's in the city's best interests.
Uh, that's well put. And I just want to point out it, when you mentioned that, uh, yeah, it was the, this, the reader was owned, my beloved reader is owned by uh, Pharaoh. But that's what I was talking about when we were negotiating, when that negotiating was going on. Uh, and it was when Edwin Eisendrath and the unions came in and snatched the Sun-Times slash reader away uh, from Tronk. Uh, that, in my opinion, saved the Sun-Times and the Reader. That's why I always give the unions credit, because, in my opinion, Charlie, had Tronk swallowed up the Sun-Times and the Reader, that would have been the end of the Sun-Times oh, and the I Reader. Agree. Yeah, I think there would have been some sort of, I mean, this is speculation on my part, I want to be clear, but I think there would have been some sort of, you know, 18-month period of sort of, like, good faith. Look, it's two different newsrooms, you know, owned by the same company. And then they would have just started slashing. And, you'd, you know, you'd have half as many state house reporters and half as many sports reporters and uh, half as many people covering cops and crime. And, and, you know, pretty soon one would just be absorbed into the other. Yeah. And, um, no one wanted to do that, you know. Uh, All right. So let's talk about uh, the state of the Tribune right now. Uh, so many talented people have left. And... Uh, why don't you talk about some of the people who have left and why and the impact that's had? Sure. So, I mean, a, a number of people have left. In fact, uh, you know, just literally minutes before uh, I came on with you, um, we had a big digital send off for a colleague of mine who I work with uh, closely, uh, a guy named Joe Rupel, who's going to work for um, CPS, who's uh, probably one of the like smartest and uh, most diligent uh, people I've worked with and uh, a really good guy, I think. And um, the more and more people, not just at the Tribune, but in journalism writ large, feel that there isn't, I think, a future in it, that they can't have um, a decent life that's worth having and they don't have faith in the leadership of the company to steer it in the right direction for future success, the more and more people are just going to decide to do something else with their life, especially people who work in the Tribune who are almost by definition, you know, intelligent, talented, hardworking, um, smart uh, people who are going to have opportunities. They're going to have other things that they want to do with their life. Um, the big example, which um, people might have noticed or might not, is David Jackson resigned from the paper. Uh, for those who don't know, David is one of our uh, top investigative reporters, or I should say was. He's no longer employed. Um, Pulitzer Prize winner. He's done a number of major stories, uh, rewritten laws, caught fugitives from justice. I mean, really like a like um, almost like a cartoon character of like the, the dogged investigative reporter. And I, I talked to him briefly, just a brief email correspondence. Uh, and he doesn't have any updates on his next steps, but he resigned because he'd been leading this campaign, this very courageous campaign to find us new local ownership that wasn't under Alden's um, imprint and uh, was unsuccessful and felt that he just could not honorably work for Alden. Those are his words. It's just something he couldn't honorably do. And so he decided to resign. Um, and that's a huge loss. I mean, that, David is, is quite literally one of the best reporters in the United States of America. Um, I don't know that anybody would dispute that. And um, also was a deeply decent person, is a deeply decent person, and someone who dedicated a huge amount of his time 
to mentoring younger reporters um, on little stuff. You know, he was huge on sort of bringing up the next generation of people behind him. That was a big priority for him. And he just, he just left, you know, he doesn't have another job as far as I'm aware. And when you start seeing people both at the sort of the, the top of the food chain journalistically, you know, the Pulitzer Prize winning, big deal investigative reporters, and then people down on my end who are much sort of a, a lower cast, as it were, hmm. all pulling the ripcord, you know, you know you're kind of in trouble if something doesn't change. Uh, and I should also point out that Mary Wisniewski, who was on the show with you, uh, when it was snowing and Pete Buttigieg was still running for president, uh, she too has left. Uh, and she's gone uh, to work for Judge Evans, am I correct? Yeah, the chief, the chief uh, judge of the Cook County Criminal Courts, yeah. And, um, you know, she has, uh, I don't want to get into her backstory too much, but let's just say she has um, a family member with a serious health problem and needs quite a bit more money to support that person, and the Tribune was not willing to pay her more. And so she's, she's gone. So is the Tribune's response to people like Jackson and Wisniewski leaving to... Uh, hire people to replace him, or is the Tribune's response to do what's, what so many companies do? Like, whew, thank God we saved that salary. Uh, we'll just pretend like that person never existed. Which in way the, are they heading? In the case of Mary, who was our transit reporter, our, our transfer, transportation reporter, more so, so she covered the CTA, Metra, uh, highway construction, IDOT, um, bicycling, that kind of stuff. Um, she, they've advertised for her position and I understand they're hiring somebody for it. Um, just because it's too significant a beat to go uncovered. Um, but in most cases, um, those jobs remain unfilled and we just do more with less. That's an extraordinary, I would say that's the vast majority of instances. Mm. Uh, and uh, my best, by the way, best wishes uh, to Mary Wisniewski. Uh, she was just on the show not too long ago. We weren't even talking. We were talking Nelson Algren, and uh, she's uh, wrote a biography of Nelson Algren. I'm probably going to bring her back to do a little more Nelson Algren talk. Mary yeah, Wisniewski. Buy her book. Yeah, buy her book. She really knows Chicago well, and it's, she loves Chicago uh, tremendously. Best of luck to you. And also, David Jackson, I think I told you this. I'm so old. I knew David Jackson when he was young, and uh, he played the he great guitar player. People don't know that about David Jackson. The kid can play the guitar. Uh, and so best of luck to David Jackson. I just have heard about David Jackson. I'll take your word for it. Yeah, uh, and uh, uh, maybe I'll bring him on the show someday. We could talk uh, journalism, et cetera, and so forth. There's also a lot of talk of furloughs at the Tribune. Explain what's going on with, at the Tribune in, case, in terms of furloughs. So this is, I think, a, a definitely an instructive example of like what we're, what we're talking about when we talk about the, the staff of the Tribune, the photographers, reporters, editors, the people whose names you see in bylines and photo credits – and on social media, kind of being up against the company that owns the paper. Um, we were approached by the company when the pandemic kicked off, um, and they basically said that there are exigent business circumstances and we need to um, basically slash salaries permanently and furlough a bunch of people. Um, these are going to be permanent pay cuts to deal with what you know, looked at the time to be a temporary crisis. Uh, no one, you know, had no one in living memory had dealt with any kind of pandemic like this. Um, and it became clear that, uh, to use the words of um, 
an investigative reporter who's on the bargaining committee with me that they were they were profiteering. They were using a crisis to try and slash as much of their costs as possible. They were using this pandemic, which is, of course, basically the biggest news story of my entire life, I hope, more than likely anyway. Um, like, they were using a moment in which news and information and good information is literally a matter of life and death to permanently reduce the pay, you know, not not, not snapping back at the you know, beginning of next year, uh, you know, not uh, we'll raise your pay back again in six months, but permanently, you know, in perpetuity, they were going to reduce the earnings of their entire news staff. And because we had unionized, they were forced to negotiate with us. And what ultimately happened is we banged out a deal where the staff, each member of the staff took three weeks of furloughs. The last week of furloughs is finishing up now. Um, so basically everyone on the Tribune staff is in the unit, which is the majority of people, um, basically missed a week of work in May, June, and July each, more or less. Um, they weren't paid for it and they were eligible for unemployment benefits during that period of time. Um, and, um, you know, that I think quite obviously hurts the quality of the paper. You know, we had beat reporters who were not allowed to contribute to huge stories on their beat. Um, there were a number of instances in which people like got scoops or covered large breaking news, like the Columbus statue, for example, or uh, we broke news about the federal agents that were going to be coming to Chicago. And those scoops and stories happened like late in the day, um, right before that reporter hit furlough. So they broke this huge story, they covered this huge story, and then that's it. They were legally prohibited from even communicating with their editors um, about it. And that, you know, obviously degrades the quality of the paper. It leaves opportunities for competitors to come in and eat our lunch, so to speak. Um, and it's also just demoralizing to the staff. I mean, it's been, it's been very difficult to watch people who desperately want to do this work and who are, you know, make no mistake about it, taking a pay cut to do this work. Everybody on staff could make significantly more money doing something else. Um, because they believe it's important. Um, and I, without boring everybody about the details, I can say there have been a thousand problems with the state's unemployment system where people's benefits have been delayed or not paid out. So it's been this extraordinarily stressful period of time mm-hmm. for the rank and file staff. Um, and it's coming to a close, but we don't really know what the future holds um, after this week. Did the uh, needs to know? By the way, I urge everybody want to read more about this. Eric Zorn has written a couple columns uh, on this topic uh, that yeah. are very revealing. Nick uh, has written one as well, just about her personal experience, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. All right. Uh, so uh, let's move on to. Uh, I have a quick question before we move on. Mm-hmm. Uh, did the the company apply for payroll assistance from the federal government? While they were uh, saying they were they were furloughed, guys, we're broke. We don't know what to do, so we're going to furlough you. We asked them repeatedly, and they provided no substantive information, even though uh, people in the bargaining committee had signed a non-disclosure agreement so that we could access um, private, uh, non-public information. It's a publicly traded company, and so there would be concerns if they showed us financials that were not yet disclosed to the public, and so we had to sign an NDA. Um, without getting into all that, I'll just say they provided non-substantive answers um, wow. to questions regarding whether or not they were 
seeking alternative financing, uh, whether they were seeking some kind of bailout, whether they were lobbying the government for public funds. Um, we asked and asked and asked and asked and asked every way we could, and we were totally stonewalled. Okay, well, because uh, the Sun-Times and the Reader have uh, sought and uh, received assistance from the feds. And, and have a number of, of publications, including conservative-leading publications. Yeah. Yeah, so um, that would really be in bad form, to put it mildly, uh, if you tell the employees, uh, because of this crisis, uh, we're going to ask you all to take a cut in pay, uh, and we're going to make do with less because of this crisis. And meanwhile, you're quietly getting my- I'm not saying this is going on. I'm just saying it would be outrageous. And David Jackson, you have free time now. Feel free to take the deep dive on this one. If you're looking for a place to publish your findings, come on over to the reader. He used to write for the reader like 50 billion years ago. There were dinosaurs on the earth, and David Jackson was writing for the reader. So uh, he's more than uh, uh, he's more than welcome to uh, sh- share his findings with the reader. That's my uh, uh, unsolicited invitation to him. All right. Uh, so that is the situation. Yeah, I've read about the furloughs, about reporters like who are on furlough, uh, breaking stories. Stories are happening on their beat and the scramble mm-hmm. uh, that takes it place. It happened a lot. It happened a lot. Um, yeah, unfortunately. And uh, so do you have any sense that of hopefulness uh, when you look at what you're facing and what you're confronting and you're still bargaining for uh, a contract? You're, we're still in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, I mean, it's really easy to be bleak and gloomy, yeah. Charlie. Is there any 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 way you could be optimistic as you look forward um i think so i mean i think there are reasons to be optimistic i wouldn't say i'm totally optimistic about the you know life under tribune publishing um but you've seen different models i think start to emerge that might be particularly useful, especially for local news and, you know, like metropolitan newspapers. Um, you have the times and the Washington post and they're doing pretty well. Those are national papers. They, you know, uh, they have national readerships, even international readerships. I think the journal is probably also doing kind of in that same boat. They've got subscribers. They've thoughtfully, in my opinion, outlaid a large amount of resources to adapt to the di- new digital landscape. Um, and they're starting to see return on that investment with, you know, super successful podcasts that are now very lucrative for them and other sort of subscription services like New York Times Food or Cooking. Um, those are harder sells at the local level, but what we really rely on more and more all the time are those subscriber dollars. Um, to, for, for clarity, and I think most people don't understand this, I didn't understand it until I started working in the industry. Um, for years and years and years, the, the news industry lost money dropping a newspaper on your doorstep. If you paid, you know, they're usually pretty cheap and you paid a couple bucks a week to get, you know, a newspaper tossed on your stoop or in your driveway, it costs the company more money to drop it on your driveway than it costs to print it. Um, The rub was they got to go to the advertisers and say, look at how many people subscribe to this product and we can charge higher rates. Um, They also had classified advertisements a lot of auto advertising, a lot of that stuff that's gone online and kind of gone away. And so subscription dollars were frankly not all that important to the news industry, the newspaper industry for quite a while. Now they're paramount. Without them, it basically won't survive. Um, and I think more and more we're seeing 
uh, newspapers and news organizations that are building readerships that they are accountable to. They're not accountable to advertisers. They're accountable to the people who value their work, who read their work on a day-to-day basis, who interact with their staff on social media. They get a much better sense about what people care about, and they have to be accountable to it. And I think that is actually kind of maybe the silver lining um, out of all this. The thing I'd say that's important to understand is if you're someone who just sort of, you know, vaguely understands the news business, but and understands that there's problems in it, but doesn't care about it um, on a, a personal level, because you don't work in it like I do, is it's not a chicken or an egg question um, regarding how to adapt a newspaper to the modern news and business environment. You can't cut your way to success. You can't continue to put out a product that is less robust and charge more and expect that you're going to be profitable in the long term. You have to invest in new reporters, in new technology, in new training, technology like podcasts, podcast studio, things of this nature, a staff to produce those kinds of things, Um, new voices and columnists that represent a broader and more diverse uh, group of people who are going to want to come in because they're reading these people and they see value in the analysis and, and the points of view that they're providing. You have to spend money to make money. I mean, it's not, it's, it, there's, there's no, there's no way around that. And what we're not seeing happen for us is that initial outlay of resources, that good faith effort to invest. We're seeing cuts, 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 jobs not being filled, pay trying to be reduced, uh, not negotiating a union contract that we think is fair. Um, and that is the part that makes us concerned about the future of the paper. Mm. Um, I know in um, Salt Lake, for example, they just went to a nonprofit model, which is something I think is going to be more and more explored. Um, I think the Huntsman family, if I'm not mistaken, owns the majority, if not outright, the Salt Lake Tribune, which is a very good local paper. I've read it because I have uh, relations in Salt Lake. Um, and they basically said, this is not a good business at this point, to be honest, they're a wealthy family and a very wealthy, influential family. Um, and we think it's super important to the health of our city and our state. And so we're converting it to a nonprofit model. It affords us a bunch of favorable tax positions. We can raise money through donations this way. And we're basically going to operate this no longer as a for-profit concern. It's going to be something we're we're going to have to make money from it in order to keep it alive, Mm -hmm. no doubt. We're still going to sell ads. Um, We still have to pay staff. But we are looking at this business no longer as, strictly speaking, a business the way you might look at, um, you know, a widget factory. Mm -hmm. And I think that is also pretty intriguing. Um, Not to continue this screed, but we actually have um, a petition that we're asking people to sign. Um, it is at saveourtribune.org, and we're asking Chicagoans or anybody who really cares about journalism and, and civic health to go there, saveourtribune.org, and sign this petition. Um, and we're delivering it to people who we think might be able to help us find ownership that truly cares about this mission and is willing to put civic health and the financial health of the staff um, over just the bottom line, which... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not great in the news business, in the newspaper business at the moment. Just just real talk. I mean, that's the nature. 
And uh, you also mentioned one last piece of news before we head out uh, that another entity at the Tribune is organizing and is joining the guild. Talk about that. Yeah. So um, TCA, Tribune Content Agency, that's the company's syndication arm. Um, so all these papers, all the company owns, makes all this great work, whether it's columns or features or breaking news coverage about something that's of you know national importance. And there are reporters, writers, editors, I think photo editors as well, who um, syndicate it. They grab it, they read it, they edit it, and they prepare it for distribution to other markets. And those people just went public with their union campaign. I think they've got 80% of their unit on cards, and they're asking the company to voluntarily recognize them. And thus far, the company is not. And I understand they haven't um, communicated with them about um, why they won't recognize them um, without forcing them to go to a, a union election, which at this point, when you have 80% of of people saying they want, publicly saying they want union recognition, an election is more or less a formality at that point. Um, and it's really just a waste of time and company uh, funds. Uh, so we're hoping that Truman Publishing will recognize them. It also includes Spanish language journalists as well. Um, a woman who was involved in organizing OI when we organized um, a ways back, uh, who was uh, lost that job when OI was closed by Truman Publishing, um, was hired by TCA, and just she's now organized again which I think is quite funny. Well, so much has changed uh, in the last 10 years in terms of organizing journalists. And I, I can recall many journalists having the attitude that somehow or other they were uh, above being in a union, uh, that uh, there was something, there was almost something grubby about being in a union and uh, they're professionals and blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. And the world has changed and people realize that there's a benefit for collective bargaining. Uh, and I am not surprised that more and more entities in journalism are turning to unions. To speak frankly, I mean, I think I was one of those people. You know, I, I come, I don't come from a, a union family, so to speak. Uh, my father is actually now in a union because he's a, he had a career change and he's a pilot now. But you know, I came from, you know, upper half of middle class, white collar folks. And it wasn't until I was in a position where I truly felt that um, the staff was being, um, to speak frankly, exploited uh, and not paid appropriately, and that the company was being badly mismanaged by people who had no credibility other than, no credential other than they had enough money to acquire it on the open market, that I really took a step back and said, oh, I get it. Now I understand. And I educated myself on what a union was, and I, I helped organize one. And I think there are a lot of people who are kind of in my scenario, not necessarily even in journalism, in, in white-collar work, who are kind of coming to that realization themselves, especially in technology and video games. I think you're going to see more and more people who, you know, wear glasses and listen to NPR and uh, <laughs> raspberry vinaigrette. Do this. By the way, even personally, and you're even, you're even starting to see people organized in, in more conservative right to work states. Like I think yes. Florida might've had, it was either zero or one, forgive me, I don't know. I think it was zero, I could be wrong, please fact check me. Um, now they've got like in a few years, like at least a handful and probably more soon of organized union papers. The Dallas Morning News in Texas is organized. I mean, it's, it's starting to happen in places where it's not, frankly speaking, popular. Um, and I think that speaks to how people feel about, you know, the news business in particular and the country in general. 
Absolutely. And uh, it's funny you should have this conversation. This is going to be a perfect segue to the next interview I'm doing, which will also drop as a bonus. Uh, I have a political science professor, David Ferris. He just wrote a book. It's called uh, The Kids Are All Left. And it's essentially looking at your generation. Charlie is, <laughs> I'm so old and he's so young. He's as old as my oldest daughter. And uh, your generation is far more open-minded uh, to joining unions. It's far to the left of the, the baby boomers. My generation which is completely freaking worthless. I say this all the time. As soon as the Vietnam War was over, they traded it. You know, they, they suddenly, when they weren't worried about being drafted, they became Reagan supporters. Completely, totally worthless generation. Uh, there's, I have a lot more hope in your generation. And uh, so I'm going to be talking to David Ferris about how your ger- generation, because of necessity, Charlie, it's like you, you come out of college with all these debts and uh, they just slam a door in, in your face. And you just, it's reality. Listen, if you need a master's degree from Northwestern to get a job at the Tribune where you're going to make between, you know, $41,000 and $51,000 a year for the next 20 years of your life, it doesn't take a genius to understand that that's not like a tenable position, you know, unless you're somehow independently wealthy. And I think a lot of people, especially younger people, you know, 40 and younger, roughly my age, I'm, I'm in my early 30s basically see it as sort of a necessity, it's kind of just a necessity and sort of just yeah. not part of the job, the way that someone who worked, you know, in an auto factory might've sort of seen, you know, UAW membership in the, in the thirties, forties, fifties, sixties. It's just sort of an, it's sort of just part of your job, you know? Yeah. I, you know, I both steal together and I'm in a union and I, you know, I get paid what I get paid in large part because of the union. And so my participation in the union uh, is compulsory, <laughs> whether, you know what I mean? It's part of my job. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Charlie Johnson, thank you so much. And uh, we'll be probably checking in with you in a couple of months. Uh, this is, as I told you, is an obsession. I had Evan Brandt on last week. He was hilarious. He's also dealing with Alden. He's the reporter from out uh, in Pennsylvania who actually visited uh, one of the uh, leaders of the Alden company, dropped in on his home. Folks, if you, if you missed that interview, you might want to check that one out. And I'm having the union boss. Uh, coming next week. Uh, John's coming in, Schleuss, and uh, so I'm going to be talking to him about union issues. You know, I get obsessive, Charlie, about certain issues, and I don't drop them. Anybody knows my TIFF coverage knows what I'm talking about. Yeah, so, this... <laughs> so anyway, Charlie, thank you so much. Stay safe and sound. We'll talk to you soon, all right? Thanks for having me. All right, that's Charlie Johnson. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody.